Did you see the muscles rippling on Carly's arms as she carried this thing up? <laughs> Carly, you have done such an incredible job this week and I think we should acknowledge it. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, were in Rome and we went to the Sistine Chapel where that magnificent ceiling uh, was painted by Michelangelo so many years ago. And there was one thing that I wanted to see and that was the painting where God reaches out his hand to touch Adam as he creates him. And that has been our theme this week and you notice that the fingers are finally touching and fusion has taken place. I really wanted to take uh, a video of it, but they had all those, those thou shalt not notices around. So I sort of had it under my arm with the lens pointing up and got some good shots, but uh, got into trouble a little bit. I want to ask you a question. What is the... Thank you, Carly. What is the uh, sweetest sound you've ever heard some people will say it's the sound of a baby crying yeah well um, maybe the first cry uh, well I'll tell you the answer it is probably the sound of your name being called I remember when I first came to college I fell in love with this girl the tragedy of it all was sort of one-sided and she ignored me but you know I sort of kept up and kept up and I knew that sooner or later my rippling physique and uh, good looks would win her over it wasn't that actually but one day I was in a crowd and I couldn't see her but she called my name and I have to tell you that was pretty good because she would not have called my name in a crowd unless there was something like affection happening. I wrote her a lovely letter, poured out my heart. I wrote two letters at once. I've never done this since. One was to my parents who were living in the UK at the time. And I posted them both off and the next day my girlfriend rang me and she said, why have you sent me a letter written to your parents? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I just prayed that the plane carrying the mail would crash or something. My parents got the letter. I knew when they got the letter because they rang me up and they read it to me. But oh, <laughs> the sweetest sound. Well, there are a number of sweet sounds, and I'm just going on a little bit of a travelogue here. We can get this thing to work. Oh, something's going to happen here. Try it again. There we are. That's uh, a picture of Gertie, my land cruiser. Ger Gertie and I have been a, a lot of places. In fact, there are very few bush tracks in Australia that we haven't crossed. And uh, a few years, uh, a few years ago, after I recovered from my injuries, I decided that I would go on the loneliest, longest ride in the world. There were two vehicles and. Uh, we uh, started from Byron Bay, which is the most easterly point in Australia, and we crossed 11 deserts to get to Shark Bay in West Australia. 
And uh, that's the Simpson Desert there, 1,500 sand dunes. I'll get on with the point. Good old Gertie. And it was at this point here, in the middle of the Gibson Desert in West Australia, we had driven for three days without seeing a single human being or building. Uh, we had done 1,000 kilometres on the tanks and we were calculating. And every morning and night, we would carefully go through the cars to make sure everything was working. And that is a Len Bedell tree. He was the last of the great Australian explorers. And when we finished and I stopped taking these photographs, I went to the car and I turned the key and there was complete silence. And when you are thousands of kilometers from the nearest garage, I was absolutely scared. I went through the car underneath and I walked around the back and then my mate Gary Blagden said to me, I'll just try it once more. And I put the key in and she burst into life. That was one of the sweetest sounds I'd ever heard. The miserable people had actually taken the fuse out of the starter motor because they wanted to see the extent of my humour. Well, uh, <laughs> never again. But Before I retired, I did a huge amount of travel. In fact, I spent so much time in airports, I used to tell people I had a terminal condition. And I... Uh, oh, you're a smart mob. And... Uh, <laughs> Every night I would always ring home and to hear the sound of my wife's voice has got to be one of the sweetest sounds you ever hear. Oh yes, bring the tissues out. I'll get even worse than that. I just love it when my little grandchildren come in and say, hello grandpa. I've got four of them. And uh, I just love them to bits, but you know, the sound of your own name can be the worst thing you can ever hear. Now, this good-looking gentleman, his name was John Stonehouse. He was a member of parliament on the way up in England. And uh, he was seen as a future leader of the Liberal Party, which meant that he would sooner or later become prime minister. Suave personable and in trouble because he had a few business dealings and he realized that the tax officials were onto his case and his cover would be blown and he would more than likely go to jail. So he got cunning and he wandered around the cemeteries until he found a name of somebody who had died who was about his age and he went and applied for a copy of the birth certificate. You can't do it now, it's called the Stonehouse Law. And uh, got a copy of the birth certificate and went and got a passport. Easy. So easy, he did it again. So there were now three people, John Stonehouse and two aliases. And on the 20th of November in 1974, he uh, flew to the United States to Florida for a conference and went for a swim at the beach and he put his towel and his wallet and his passport under the name of John Stonehouse under the towel and he said to a lady, you just watch this for me while I go for a swim and she did and he disappeared, presumed drowned. In fact, the next day in the Houses of Parliament, 
they stood for two minutes silence because John Stonehouse was dead, but he wasn't. He disappeared. If you were in Florida and you'd come from England, you wanted to go somewhere in the world to hide and set up a new life, which country would you go to? Australia. All right. Which city in Australia is so bland? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because um, I love Melbourne. I lived there for the last nine or ten years, but he popped up in Melbourne. And uh, he went to a bank, and under one of his aliases, he withdrew a huge amount of money, about $70,000. And he put it in a paper bag, and he walked out. As the teller was knocking off for lunch, and the teller closed his compartment, and he walked down the street, and he saw John Stonehouse, or whoever it was, going into Westpac Bank. He thought, that's a bit strange, carrying so much money and going into another bank. So he, he sort of wandered in and watched him, and when he left, he went to the teller and he said, look, I work for the other bank, and uh, he just took out $70,000. He said, oh, he just took out $70,000 here too. So they notified the police, and they circulated his image. They followed him. And on Christmas Eve, he was crossing a street. He didn't realize that the person next to him was a policeman in undercover. He didn't realize that the person beside him was a policeman in plain clothes. He didn't realize that the person about to cross the road until the policeman next to him turned and said, good morning, Mr. Stonehouse. He said later it was the worst sound he'd ever heard, the sound of his own name. And today I want to tell the story of a man whose name was called, and it was under the most dramatic circumstances in the Bible. And I want to talk about Abraham and Sarah. The other day I mentioned that I had a set of grandparents, James and Louisa Howie, who were married for 75 years. I remember going to their 50th party and uh, I just want you to imagine an imaginary scene. Please, this scene didn't happen, but come with me in your imagination. Grandpa's there and uh, the party's going on and they decide it's time to blow out these 50 candles on the cake, so Grandma and Grandpa get together and they blow, and uh, Grandson John looks at that candle that hasn't been spat on, and I think that'll be my corner of the cake, and at the end, Grandpa gets up to make a speech. And he says, it's a wonderful occasion, our family's around us, all our grandchildren and children, and it's a suitable occasion, because Mother and I I uh, have an announcement to make. Um, everybody sort of stops and think, what's this? And he says, I'm not quite sure how to say this, but um, grandma's pregnant. We would have fallen over. 
They were well in their 80s or something. They were very old. And uh, they were in their, whatever it was, because he was 97 when he died. And uh, we wouldn't have believed it. And here was Abraham at the age of 75. He was told that he would have a child. Remember last night I talked about that line, the messianic line that got so thin. It was down to the promise of a single child and Satan was banking on the fact that this child would never be born because Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65 and everybody knows, until we started some of these super fertility things, that at 65 a woman's just not going to have a baby. They waited and waited and waited and finally took the matters into their own hand and he had a son through a servant, Ishmael. And most of the problems we've got in the world today still are there because of that, those two boys who became the leader of the Arabs, the father of the Arabs and the father of the Jews. And finally, Adam is nine, uh, sorry, Abraham is 99 years of age. Sarah is almost 90 what a test and God appears to uh, Abraham who still doesn't believe Sarah was hiding behind a tent she laughed and God said you can laugh if you like but by this time next year you will have a little baby boy in your house and he will be born to you Sarah, come out here. Why were you laughing? I wasn't laughing. Yes, you were. You will have a son. It's no wonder that Isaac actually means laughter. Absolute sensation. Can you just imagine going to the uh, antenatal classes for the exercises and there's a 90-year-old woman there pumping exercises and <laughs> looking like she's going to have a baby. Do you think that they loved this little child? They would have adored him, and he grew up. They would have protected him. And finally, one day, when he was 17 years of age, this incredible occurrence, Genesis 22. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he said. Take your son. Boy, he puts the arrow in here. Take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about Abraham was in the middle of his sleep we're told he got out of bed he went outside he looked at the stars and he remembered that God had promised him that his progeny would be as countless as the stars he couldn't believe it the devil was talking to him flat out he said God, God didn't speak to you this is your son. He's the messianic line, isn't he? And uh, you have been brought up to preach against human sacrifices that are so common in this land. He doesn't really mean this. But because Abraham had been connected to God for so many years, he recognized God's voice. And he left very quietly with a couple of servants, woke Isaac, did not wake Sarah because he knew that Sarah would just not allow it to happen. Early the next morning, Adam got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. They carried wood. 
And he went through absolute hell for three days. Isn't it amazing how hellish experiences are in threes in the Bible? He just, his heart was breaking. He thought, God, why would you do this? And God never spoke to him. He was like Christ on the cross. He did it alone. And finally he saw the mountain. He saw the evidence of God's presence. And he said to his servants, you stay here and the boy and I will go up and worship and come back. Even then he said, we will come back. He believed that if he was to take Isaac's life, that God would resurrect his son after that. But he knew that the act of taking his life would be the hardest thing he'd ever done. And they went up and uh, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, poor old Abraham couldn't get the words out and he said, God will provide. And when they reached the place, God had told him about Abraham, built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. Boy, if my father had said that to me, I would have said, see you, Dad. Catch me if you can. But he allowed himself to be bound. There was an enormous contest going on in heaven. There are things that we don't know. We do know that the heavenly council used to meet and Satan would sometimes turn up uninvited. He did that with Job. And I believe he did the same thing. He said, Abraham is not fit to be the father of the Jewish people, of the chosen people, because he has disobeyed you. He had a son by his servant. He's failed you so many times. And God accepted the challenge to the extent, and the attack from Lucifer must have been very personal, because I believe God said in front of the heavenly hosts, you go and test Abraham. And then he turned to Lucifer's successor, Gabriel. And I suspect he said to Gabriel, I'm too close to this. You stop it and you will know when to do because it was not God who stopped the sacrifice. Because I read here, he laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And at the point where he was to kill his only son, that promise, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! When it's really urgent, you do it twice. And he said, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The whole universe must have been watching with bated breath. Well, we know that they found the ram caught in the thicket. And then God had a further message again coming through Gabriel, and this is what it was. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the, on the seashore. 
Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Let me tell you, folk, at that moment, Abraham, more than any person who has ever lived, I will guarantee he understood what the plan of salvation was all about. He knew what it was going to be like when God said goodbye to Christ and he came down to this earth. But he knew that on this occasion, death would claim him. And even though he knew he would be raised to life, he knew there would be that three days where he would be in the tomb and the day before when he hung on the cross, when Christ called out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? That there would be no contact because Isaiah tells us that Christ was to tread the winepress alone. Abraham understood what the plan of salvation was. He was never the same again. He took his son home and he knew that one day Isaac would be the father of a mighty nation. You know, uh, I think I said to you most of my leg problems and accidents are up my own silly fault, but at one stage I developed something wrong in my foot. It was a tumor of some type. And uh, I wanted a good surgeon to operate. So I asked my father, who was a, a brilliant surgeon, and he said, all right, no problem. I thought there were laws that said that uh, you couldn't operate on members of your family. And so my foot and I went to hospital and I was a bit nervous because we didn't know whether it was malignant or what was going to happen. And I was wheeled into the operating room. Well, I was a bit worried and so would you be because you go in there and you know there are a bunch of crims because they're all wearing masks. And there's this great big interrogation lamp there and they put you on the table. And uh, I remember my father coming over. I could always recognize him by his eyes. And uh, he said, you're a bit worried. I said, yeah, of course I am. I don't like anesthetics. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll put you on last. And I'll be with you when you wake up. And uh, I, I thought that was marvelous because I reached out to grab him and he was scrubbed. And I remember grabbing these gloved hands and hearing a voice say, don't touch me. And uh, I went off to sleep. Well, I woke up and I heard his voice. And he called me by a name that none of you know. He and I had a secret name. He always called me by that name when nobody else was there. Do you want to know what it is? Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> he called me by that name and he said, all is well. The operation was a success. And to show my gratitude, I threw up. <laughs> As you often do. Yeah, that must have been a marvelous scene when Abraham passed that supreme test of obedience and it must have affected 
the 17-year-old Isaac because he led a life that uh, God loved. And from that came the children of Israel. And from that one boy, where that line, that messianic line was so thin, and Satan thought, I've got you, you're going to die. He lived. You know, I've got a beautiful text to finish with. And it's over here. By the way, Dad also had a, uh, a secret tune. And we still use it in our family. It's a Scottish lament, which is about as far as I will tell you. And uh, if I would be in a committee meeting and my son or my daughters wanted to talk to me, all they had to do was to walk past and whistle that tune and I would leave. It was a signal that they wanted me. It's a lovely thing to have those sorts of secrets. But over here, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, I read these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him whoever comes, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. When John wrote those words, it was the custom, if you had a very close friend, to give them a stone. And underneath that stone was written a secret name that only you and that person would know because it was a sign of the closest bond, of the deepest affection. And you would take that stone home and you would put it back on a shelf or somewhere and it was an unwritten rule when you saw that white stone nobody except the owner of the stone was ever to pick it up and read the name and here we have been promised that when we get to the kingdom of heaven we'll be given a new name I just don't think we'll look it up in the register and I imagine that Christ will take us for a walk not long after we get to the kingdom I know there are many of us but God can be in many places at once and he'll take us for a walk and he'll say I remember the day I remember the night when you made that decision for me that you would be obedient and it meant a lot and you mightn't have realized it at the time but it meant so much that now you are living here and you are living in my house I have something for you and he will give us a white stone and on it will be your new name and throughout eternity Christ will call you by that name I'm looking forward to that I hope you are too